Well, for those who have been uh, with us for uh, the weeks, uh, past few weeks, one thing that you can know for sure about the life of Paul, uh, Paul the missionary, once the persecutor of the church, now the persecuted, is that he certainly wasn't without any trouble. Um, there was no shortage of trouble, whether it being stoned at Lystra, whether it being jailed in Philippi, whether it being uh, causing a riot in Thessalonica, and now being sent off from his friends, as we read last week, in Berea, uh, for people who were agitating him and, and opposing him. And his friends thought, we got to get Paul out of here. And so they sent him down to Athens. And Athens was around 300 miles south of Berea. And I'm not sure totally, you know, this is a bit of speculation here, so bear with me. But I'm not sure totally what their motive was in sending him down to Athens. Maybe they thought, Paul, as a cultured person, why don't we send him down to the cultural megacity of all of the Roman Empire to go there, maybe for a vacation. <laughs> maybe they thought, uh, this man, he just needs a rest. There's so much opposition that he's going through here, so let's send him off and later on we'll catch up with him. But for whatever the motive, we see that Paul didn't just show up in Athens as he was waiting for his friends, simply and merely as a sightseer. And for those who have been to Athens, I haven't, I know friends that have, and they've boasted about the architectural brilliance. It's full of artistic power. It, at that time, and even in many ways today, it was the in intellectual capital of the world. And it was also very religious. In fact, a lot of people say that when you went to, uh, to Athens, that it was easier for you to find a god, quicker for you to find a god, than for you to actually meet a person, a man. This is the landscape that Paul was finding himself in. And yet Luke takes pains and he draws us in to see that Paul, again, was not just a sightseer, but he sees through the eyes of a Christian as he looks upon the city. And he sees the moral lostness, the spiritual decadence, the philosophical vanity and inconsistency. And in his heart, he's provoked. And I'm gonna, we're going to speak about this a little more this morning. But he sees a city that needs to know the living God. He sees a city that needs to know the real living God. And so where I want to go this morning and the way that I want to unpack Paul's response to the city of Athens is first of all looking at first what was Paul's attitude towards the city. Uh, secondly, I want to talk about Paul's approach to the city, how he spoke about this God that I'm speaking about. And lastly, what was his appeal? Okay. So Paul's attitude, his approach, and his appeal. And as somebody, as I was telling in our small group, hopefully this will be a grade A sermon this morning. I don't know. Yeah, okay. They all started. That was, all right. It was actually his joke, and it's appropriate. You can judge afterwards. So let's begin with Paul's attitude. So we see as Paul was waiting, as, as Silas and Timothy had sent him down to Athens, he was, he was looking over the city, again, not simply as a tourist, but he became provoked in his spirit. As he saw these, what people think is just a, uh, an idol buffet, over 3,000 idols to every which God, as Paul looked upon it and stood before all these statues with the inscriptions on, he was provoked in his spirit. He was deeply grieved. He was stirred in his spirit. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I don't know if you've if you've looked upon your city or if you've looked upon just a sense of lostness and you feel there's something wrong here, there's something that you just feel grieved in your heart. 
We get a glimpse here into the psyche of Paul. And as he walked around, he didn't just see the the statues, the stadiums, the cultural sophistications, the cultural sophistication with awe and wonder, but he saw the lostness of the people who were defaming his creator. Now, Paul was a good Jewish boy at at one point, and he knew growing up, listening to Deuteronomy 6, that Uh, the Shema of that there is one God that you should worship, one God alone. But we saw as 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 he came to know who this real God was, that it was actually the revelation of this God was Jesus for Paul. That it wasn't just this vague, abstract God in the sky, but he knew who his Savior was. And so he began to speak about who is, about Jesus and his resurrection. And one of the thoughts that I had as he looked upon all this sophistication and the idols, when, I wonder if in his mind, as he wrote down in 1 Corinthians, he's, him saying, who are these scribes, the debaters of this age, the wisdom of the world? Has God not made the wisdom of this age foolish? Is not all these means of trying to get to God, is it not foolishness? Because deep in his heart, as I had said, he knew that there was no sophistication, no intellectualism, No way that anybody could attain true knowledge of God from a human perspective here, through any idol, through any God that was man-made. And so he was provoked not to start a campaign, not to rally a bunch of politicians to try to take a bunch of sledgehammers and knock down all these idols. He began and he was provoked to enter into dialogue with the city. And like what we see throughout a lot of Acts, he began in the synagogues and then went in to the marketplace, talking about the living God and this Jesus raised from the dead. And there was a great stirring, more trouble. We'll talk a little bit more about this in a bit, but Epicureans and Stoics and other people alike begin to say, who is this babbler? Who is this preacher of of foreign divinities? What is this guy saying here? Uh, To to translate, to maybe give a better image of this babbler, uh, in the original language, it, it speaks of this bird who is just pecking at things and and almost just shooting out just scraps all over the place. Just picking at something and throwing out the seeds. And they're looking at Paul and saying, what, what is this empty talker saying? And yet at the same time, the Athenians were people who loved new things. They loved strange things. They loved things that hadn't been said before. I don't know if this relates much in our culture. People's ears pluck up, especially in the church. When we say things, it's like, oh, this sounds new. This, there's a novelty idea about this. I want to hear what is being said here. And this was much of, uh, much of what was happening in Athens at the time. They said, what is this man saying? We want to hear what he has to say. And so we get, uh, as we move on in the passage, we see Paul's wonderful response. The brilliance of Paul's approach to these people. Are saying, what is this guy saying? And so they brought him to the Areopagus. They brought him to this place formerly what the Romans called as Mars Hill. And Mars Hill was a place that all civic, uh, religious, spiritual ideas, this is where the the wrestling match happened. If anything was going to be solved in culture, it happened on Mars Hill. And so as much as people were agitated, as much as people were saying, what is this guy saying? This is an empty talker. They brought him to the the philosopher's red carpet. So Paul began to speak to them about this God. It's utter brilliance, the Holy Spirit working through Paul, but it's awesome to see how Paul didn't just speak to Jews here, but a Greek uh, pagan culture. Probably much of what the culture that we're in today that is very pluralistic, 
that people worships any God that they can find, any God that can bring an inner harmony and peace and certain sacredness. So Paul began to speak to them. People who were ignorant of the Bible. And he didn't start with Genesis 1. Uh, to give a little bit of feedback to who these philosophers were, the Epicureans, who, was me- who were mentioned earlier, the Epicureans were people who they longed for pleasure and sensual delight. And so this is, again, giving us a little bit of an image that we're actually not so different than what happened 2,000 years ago. They, they lived this hedonistic lifestyle, eat, drink, and be merry. Anything that I can do to find pleasure in this life, then I'm going to proceed with that. Sound, does that sound familiar at all? And the Stoics were people who were actually very emotionless people. The Stoics were people that thought it's all about grit. It's all about mental stability. It's all about kind of having this moral aptitude that even though life is always unchanging, that I'm going to be strong as a rock here. I'm going to be morally, I'm going to be morally esteemed in this culture. And so you kind of see the difference here of the philosophers that Paul was speaking to. And they weren't just people who were Epicureans and Stoics. We learn, actually, as we read in our verse here, that they had an inscription upon a God that was to an unknown God. And Paul said, What therefore you worship has known, this I proclaim to you. And Paul looked upon the culture, and one of the things that we can see about his approach is that he latched on to the obvious weakness of the culture. I don't know if that makes sense to you. He's seeing people who are very religious. In fact, he says, I perceive that you're very religious people here. You're superstitious. You're yearning for some kind of truth here, and yet there seems like there's an inadequacy in your belief. You have all these gods to, gods to sex, gods to wealth, gods to living long life and fertility. You have gods that you know, would be for family. Everything that you can think of, much like today, Though we might not have actual statues, but there are certainly many gods in our culture today. And Paul latched on to the self-proclaimed weakness of this society and saying, you don't even know who this God is. You're trying to cover all of your bases here. You're trying to, to squeeze the life out of this God to find fulfillment, to find satisfaction, to find relationship with God. But I'm going to begin to tell you about who this God is that you actually don't know. And so he began to speak to them about God. Well, what was the first way that Paul began to speak to these people in his approach about knowing who God is? Well, as we read down in our passage today, in verse 24, Paul makes this this brilliant statement in saying, this God, who maybe you've, you've thought in this unknown altar that you have made, that you've inscribed upon it, that you don't even know. This God is the one who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord. He's the the Lord of heaven and earth. And He does not live in temples made by man. He's not a statue. He's not something that you can create. See, what Paul was saying is that this God that you need to know about has surrounded Himself with you everywhere. Everywhere you look, this Creator has left his signature on this entire world that as you look upon creation, as you look out in the world to see everything that has been created is meant to point you to know that this God does not live in a temple. In fact, he's far greater than that. He he far supersedes that. You can't reduce him to a God where 
You build something and you pray to it and then he gives you something back. In fact, this God does not need you. He, does not, he cannot be served by human hands. He is a creator, a sustainer, one who governs everything. That God, in all of his majesty and everything that he's created, he's pressing into you saying, look, I am real. That every particle in this world that is created that it was God who made that, not so that we would take it and that we would say, look what we have done, or that we would remain in ignorance, but that so we turn upward and we say, wow, this is something that God has made and that we would worship him. During the, the, French, uh, during the French Revolution, I believe it's in the 18th century, forgive me, my history and philosophy is not great, but I remember a story, and the French, they were trying to do away with the church, and they said we are going to remove all the steeples in the city, all of the churches, so there will not be one figment of God left to remember in this society. And I can't remember who it was, but they responded, and they said, you can take away our steeples, you can take away, you can pull down our churches, but what you can't do is you can't pull down the stars. You can't take down creation, because all of creation screams the glory of God. Do we see that? Whether you're a believer here today, do you look upon the majesty of this world, a God who cannot be served, a God who is great, and see his signature upon everything. And, and Paul is awesome here in saying that in all these things that God has made, it's so what? It's so that we would seek him and, perf- and perhaps feel our way towards him and find him. Isn't that incredible? That all the grace that God has poured out in this world isn't just so that we would enjoy it and worship creation, right? In Romans 1, it's clear. He's, Paul says, you've exchanged the glory of God for a lie. Now you're worshiping creation, and you're going to be empty, and it's not going to fulfill you, and you're going to be at enmity with God, but God has actually given this creation that we point to him and glorify him and worship him. He's pressing in. To the world, he was pushing into the Athenians of that day and saying, look all around you, God is pressing into you, he's surrounding you so that you would feel your way towards him, that you would respond, so that you would know that he's not reduced to a statue, but he's a God far greater than that. God has surrounded you with himself. But he goes on to say something more and he, he, uh, he, he springboards off a Greek poet And saying, in verse 27, in verse 28, In God we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, it's brilliance here. He's taking the newspaper of the Athenians. He's taking the poets of the Athenians. He's having one foot in the Bible and one foot in the world. I I know some people say, well, we want to have both feet in the Bible. I get you here. But for the sake of the point, he's, he's engaging the culture here. And saying, you guys even believe this, right? In him you live and move and have your being. God hasn't just surrounded you, but as one theologian has said, that God has actually invaded you. That actually God has left his imprint, not just externally on this world, but on you. That you are actually made in the image of God. You know, for the atheists, they can say, they can, they can try to run away from this. Say, no, it's a, it's a biological, evolutionary process. But if you're around an atheist for long enough, you'll begin to see the moral inconsistencies of the atheist, of even of what they believe in their heart. 
what kind of presupposition can you have for any kind of morality, for any reference point of truth, if you believe that there is no such thing as God? Paul is saying here, he's saying God hasn't just surrounded you with his presence and with his glory, but that actually you're made in the image of God. You are his offspring. We are indeed his offspring. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth that in him you live, you move, and you have your being, your breath, the breath in your lungs, the fact that you can reason, the fact that you could even relate to this God is that he has put his image upon you, and you cannot lose that. Sure, we are born into sin, but as you look around, as you look at your neighbor, the very image of God is imprinted upon you. And Paul is appealing to them here and saying, this is said of you. The image of God is not on these statues here, not on this thing inscripted, to, these un, to this unknown God, but that we can also know God because He has invaded our very, our, our very being. But at this point, Paul knew. Paul knew that even though God, just like us today, God has surrounded us, even though God has put His image upon you, uh, because of sin in the world, because of our spiritual blindness, like the Athenians, like Athens, like Toronto, like every person ever born, that there's this moral lostness. We still refuse him. Even though everything is shouting and saying, look, I am real, that God is real. We have suppressed the truth in our hearts. And we choose to worship anything else. We're not, we are not too far away from the Athenians. We may not set up all these altars, all these statues, but think about in our culture today, what are the gods that we worship? Because the truth of the matter is, is that everybody worships. If you're not going to worship the one true living God that Paul is speaking about here, that doesn't mean that you don't worship. It just means that you worship something else. It means that you worship comfort. It means that you, you worship, in our culture, maybe tolerance. Right? Everything goes. We don't want to step on anybody's toes that, that my God is actually the God of tolerance. Or maybe, maybe your God is to have an amazing family with no issues, that everything goes right and you pour all of your time, your effort, your productivity into that family, hoping to receive at the end of your life fulfillment and satisfaction. And I ask you today, in all of these gods that we seek to squeeze life and meaning and fulfillment in, is it working for you? Is it working for our society as we remove God from the school? Are things getting better? as we esteem ourselves in being a sophisticated culture and being so intellectual, are the evils of our culture actually being pushed to the wayside? I don't think so. I don't think so. So Paul is saying here that there's a worshiping issue here. You've refused God in your heart. You've suppressed the truth in your heart and you've worshipped all these other idols and he was grieved. This, this grieved Paul. Does it grieve you as you look out upon your city? Even thinking about the idols in your heart, and you think, man, I'm settling for something so much less. I, I was made for so much more than this, and yet I'm reducing my life to find pleasure, satisfaction, meaning, relationship with God in this, instead of a God who created everything. It's a contrast here. And so Paul was appealing to them on their basis, and speaking to the weakness, their self-proclaimed weakness. 
and his approach was mighty. But then he began, and, and I'm sure there was some agreement there. They were engaging. Okay, yeah, he's speaking with our poets. He's, he's appealing from a Judeo-Christian worldview. Okay, I, I can go here. But Paul takes this one step further. You don't just see Paul's attitude, his approach to the Athenian people. But we learn as we read down verse 29, Paul's appeal to them. Paul's appeal to us. Paul's appeal to our city. He's saying, assuming that being, being then God's offspring, we, are not, we ought not to think that this divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and the imagination of, mind, of the mind, but that this God, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, God has put up with the sin of this world. God has been long-suffering and not bringing His judgment down upon people who just basically throw their middle finger up to God and say, we want nothing to do with you. We want to live for ourselves. We want to be our own gods. And he's saying, he's saying here, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, but now that you have heard this, now that this, and we'll see in a second as, I, as he's preached about Jesus and the resurrection, now he commands people everywhere to repent to repent of their, their godless life, repent of all their ways of seeking to obtain relationship with God, finding fulfillment and meaning, to repent, to turn away from that, to turn tr- to the living God. Because He has fixed the day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, Jesus. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. He commands all people to repent, to turn from their idols because the judgment of God is real. Nobody escapes the judgment of God. If Paul, if, if Paul, this God that Paul is really speaking about as this creator, one we're accountable to, who's a, he's made us in his image, then we're accountable to him. And it's a scary reality to come into uh, to, to face this judgment of God of saying, I want nothing to do with my Creator. And Paul was so provoked to come into the city to say, I want to bring an answer here. I want to show you guys where all of this is heading, where all of God's redemptive history is pointing. And it's Jesus. It's pointing at the resurrection here. The one now who was who raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of God because for Paul, judgment wasn't such a bad word. Why? Because he, because he had received Christ, he'd received this living Jesus who came to live, to die, and rose again for him, and knowing that he could receive now this relationship with God, that the, the wrongs could be righted, that this problem of, of, of defaming his creator and defiling his creator, that he can actually truly be forgiven and brought back into relationship with God. And so to actually now be judged means that you're judged on the merit of Christ, that he stands in your place, that you're brought back into relationship with God, which is a wonderful thing to be judged because the truth be told, if I was judged on everything that I've thought, everything that I've done, everything that I've said, it's a scary reality because my heart is impure. But if I can be judged on that day by this one who was appointed, on that, uh, that one who was appointed, who is Jesus, the resurrection proving that there is great hope for this entire world 
there's great hope that we can be brought back into this relationship, this wonderful, loving God, and not just brought back into relationship, but have eternity with this God, to actually be raised on the last day with him. This is an incredible truth. It's the contrast that Paul was saying here, that the resurrection wasn't just another teaching, that this wasn't just him speaking about a foreign divinity, but that the resurrection was the center of God's plan. This is this, this changes everything. This was exclusive. This was the only means to bring people back into relationship with God. This is the hope that is here for you this morning, and maybe you're thinking it's hard to believe these things, and I would encourage you in your faith to take Paul's words seriously, that he was saying to the Athenians that though judgment before God seems like this overwhelming, scary reality, at the very same time, to know that there is a Savior to know there's one who, who came in your place that can bring you back into relationship with God becomes a beautiful thing to actually be judged by him because it's not on you, but on Christ. There's a few things that I want to leave with us this morning of practical ways. We hear these things. We hear Paul's attitude. We hear his approach to the people. And we hear his appeal to repent. Repent of these idols and come into this life saving, wonderful relationship with your God. And I'd ask us this morning, what is it going to look like for us to be a faithful witness of Jesus in our city? Where you are right now. I will offer a few things. There's probably a hundred things that you could say here, but in, in hoping to be taking this from the passage, I'd like to share a few. First question I want to ask of us thinking about being faithful witnesses of Jesus is, are we stirred in our hearts? Are we provoked in our hearts that Jesus is the only answer to this broken world? Have we bought into this idea that Jesus exclusively is the only way to God? And some of us here, you might be in church for a while and you think, well, okay, of, of course I do. But this, this message needs to burn deep in our hearts that it's not going to be another therapy, another program, other things, and Paul knew this as he went into the most sophisticated place in the entire world. He knew that the world needed Jesus. He knew that people needed to come into relationship with this living God. Is that passion burning in your heart today? Are you, concerned, are you consumed with the glory of God to such a degree that as you go to your workplace, as, as you go to your apartment, as you go to your block in which you live, that this community needs to hear about the goodness of Jesus? Do you weep over that? Does it, does, it, does it even keep you up at night sometimes as you're praying and saying, Lord, I want these, my neighbor to know Christ. Because there's a reality that outside of him there's no life, now and eternally. To be a faithful witness of Jesus, this message needs to stir in our heart. It stirred in Paul's. It provoked him. He was greatly distressed. Not just because... God was being defamed, but because he saw the lostness of a city. Secondly, are we learning, are we learning, are we learning to learn the language of our city, the language of our culture? It's incredible here that the message was always the same in Acts, but sometimes the music was different. When Paul was speaking to the Jews, he would speak very differently than he was speaking to the Athenians. And I know for those who like to work with systems and think it's always the four spiritual laws, it's all people need to hear. 
but there's a way where you actually begin to sit at the feet of your culture and learn. You learn about the weaknesses of the culture. You learn about what are the things that drive and motivate your, your coworkers and your family. And it gives you an eye as you have the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the others of how to speak into the issues of our city. No, I don't think that everybody here is called to be a preacher. You're going to stand on the street corners. I know some here are thinking, I'm introverted. I don't really say anything. But I think in all spheres of your life, to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ, that is for all of us. And as you look upon your city, as we look upon Toronto, as we look upon the nooks and crannies of our city, are we exegeting our culture? Are we learning of our culture so that we can be like Paul to say, oh, this Greek poet might be an appropriate place to speak to them about God. Maybe it's the newspaper. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's other areas. What are the idols that you can put your finger on and say, ha, here's the futility in that. I can begin to speak about God. I, I often, recently, for me, I've, I've been speaking a lot with Muslims. Uh, a lot, I play a lot of pool with a lot of Muslim guys who become my friends. And one of the things that has struck me, and this isn't me speaking harshly at all about any Muslims, is that if you ask any of them, this, do you have any guaranteed salvation before God? Is there, is, is there a certainty in your heart you know that you can be saved? And every good Muslim I've spoken to said, no, I, I, I can't say that. I only hope that my good works at the end of the day will, will kind of bring me into to God's good graces before him grieves me, and I push them on that, and I question that kind of insertion. That seems like a pretty big deal to not be sure. But you, you learn of that, and then you begin to speak, latching on to the weaknesses of the culture. And lastly, uh, and this is a prayer that I would love for us to pray here, is to ask God for courage as you go into the city. Paul, you know, you wondered, Paul going down, if it was a vacation or sightseeing down to Athens, waiting for Silas and Timothy to come, maybe hanging out in his hotel room or wherever he was and just thinking, you know, I, I just need a break. The Christian life has been pretty difficult here. Forgive me, I know there's some speculation. I don't know. Paul, he was, Paul was a very zealous guy, so maybe he was just out there. But he was, he was driven to share the good news of Christ, but it wasn't, just, it wasn't just because he was a good communicator. He had this godly courage inside of him. He, was, he knew it was worthy to suffer for the name of Christ, but it wasn't him. It was, it was the Spirit empowering him to go into all these cities to share about the truth of Jesus. Do we have that courage? Does, does, the ta- does our tail get between our legs when someone says, oh, you believe in Christ? That's pretty unsophisticated. It's like... The, the reality is, is that the message of the gospel is going to be utter foolishness to those who don't have faith. At times, you're going to look like you... You've gotten, you know, a frontal lobotomy maybe because people say, really, you believe that? Even as Steve was saying in worship, this sounds crazy. But over time, as you, as you pray for people and as God, he gives you words to say, you're going to be speaking into people's heart and realizing that God is the sovereign one who raises people's hearts from the dead, not you. And so I pray that he would give us that courage to be faithful witnesses, stirred in our hearts, learning the language of our culture and asking God for courage. As Paul, in this incredible scenario that we see, this climactic scene in Acts, as Paul went in there and again turned the world upside down, as we see not everybody believed here. It wasn't a radical tent revival where every single person gave their life to Christ. In fact, when some heard, some mocked. 
Others said, we will hear you again about this. Keep talking to me about this because maybe there's something here that you're saying that seems true. But some joined. They joined him and believed, which was joining Jesus, among who were very important people here, men, women, children alike. And this is the reality. As God grows this church, as he multiplies our mission here as we're going through Acts, there's going to be people who mock you. There's going to be people who say, Chris, I want to hear more about this. And there's people who are going to say, I need Jesus. This, this, this is it. This is the cutting edge. This is the only thing that I can give life. And I pray that we'll be apt to respond in those times. Let's pray this morning.